0: Hello, everyone. This is Scott Fraser, and I have the privilege of teaching this lesson for Cedar Fort Publishing's series, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. I am the author of three books published by Cedar Fort, Where Science Meets God, Angry with God, and Mentally Calm, Spiritually Connected. I also host a podcast called Science and Scriptures, if you want a new podcast in your life. Today we will be discussing Doctrine and Covenants 67 to 70, the lesson for June 21st to 27th. To set the stage for this lesson, let me read from the Come, Follow Me for Individuals and Families manual. From 1828 to 1831, the Prophet Joseph Smith received many revelations from the Lord, including divine counsel for individuals, instructions on governing the Church, and inspiring visions of the latter days. But many of the saints hadn't read them. The revelations weren't yet published, and the few available copies were handwritten on loose sheets That were circulated among members and carried around by missionaries. Then, in November 1831, Joseph called a council of church leaders to discuss publishing the revelations. After seeking the Lord's will, these leaders made plans to publish the Book of Commandments, the precursor to today's Doctrine and Covenants. So, at that conference, Section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants was revealed to Joseph. After that revelation, according to the introduction of Section 67, some negative conversation was had concerning the language used in the Revelations. Apparently, most of the complaints were coming from William E. McClellan. In verses 5 through 7, we read the Lord's response Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known, and you have sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. Now, seek ye out of the Book of Commandments even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you, or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that you do not know that they are true. Joseph Smith then reports that William McClellan, as the wisest man in his estimation, having more learning than sense, endeavored to write a commandment like unto one of the least of the Lord's, but failed. It was an awful responsibility to write in the name of the Lord. The elders and all present that witnessed this vain attempt of a man to imitate the language of Jesus Christ renewed their faith. When I've heard this lesson taught in Sunday school in past years, everyone in class agrees that no one could write a scripture. But there was a huge missing ingredient in these lessons, because I'm sorry, writing something that sounds like scripture is not that hard. I have read enough scriptures to be able to phrase what I want to say in Old English, using phrases and sentence structure that the Lord repeatedly uses. I don't have to be an author to wordsmith a commandment and make it sound like scripture. Thus, D&C 67 was a mystery to me for years. Then, reading further ahead into verses 8 and 9 one day, I think I finally found the missing ingredient that needs to be taught with this section. I quote, But if you cannot make one like unto it, Ye are under condemnation if you do not bear record that they are true. For ye know that there is no unrighteousness in them, and that which is righteous come down from above, from the Father of lights. How could these early leaders of the church know that there was no unrighteousness in the commandments written by Joseph Smith, only by the Spirit? This is the missing ingredient that needs to be considered for these verses to make sense. I can write verses that sound like scriptures all day long but I cannot write verses that can be verified by the Holy Ghost. There will be no spirit behind my words, no confirmation of their truth. Verses 8 and 9 really should be combined into one verse, because without verse 9, verse 8 makes no sense. Taking just verse 8, If you cannot write a verse that sounds like a scripture, you are under condemnation if you don't bear record that Joseph's words are true. This makes no sense. I could be a poor author, and Joseph's words could still be untrue. If you then include verse 9, Since you know by the Spirit that Joseph's commandments are righteous and true, you are under condemnation if you don't bear record that Joseph's words are true. Fair enough. If the Spirit has witnessed to me that Joseph's commandments are righteous and true, I need to be able to bear record that they are so. David Rich's in Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier includes a quote by Orson F. Whitney, which rather confirms my conclusion. He said, Well, one of them, who thought himself the wisest and who possessed some learning, took up the challenge and actually attempted to frame a revelation, but it was a flat failure. He could utter, of course, certain words and roll out a mass of rhetoric, but the divine spirit was lacking, and he had to acknowledge himself beaten. I hope that makes better sense now. So now let's jump ahead to verses 10 through 12 of Doctrine and Covenants 67. We read, starting in verse 10, And again, verily I say unto you, that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained into this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me, and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual. For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh, except quickened by the Spirit of God. Neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither after the carnal mind. We can cross-reference these last two verses to Exodus thirty-three twenty, where God is talking to Moses, and he says, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. I have found that this verse in Exodus can be problematic in doing missionary work. In my discussions with non-members, I have had this verse quoted to me to argue that Joseph Smith could not have seen and talked with Heavenly Father and lived. It seems pretty illogical that God cannot prevent your death if you see him, but that is what Exodus 33 tells us. I would like to see God someday, as did these brethren. And God did encourage these early church leaders to keep working at perfection. In verse 13, he states, Ye are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until you are perfected. So, It is possible to see the Lord in this lifetime? Remember that when God says, Be ye perfect, He does not mean that you are a person who cannot make a mistake. He means that you are a good person who continually seeks to do His will. Given that fact, out of curiosity, what does the Spirit of God have to do to quicken me? Must I suppress my natural man and carnal mind during the meeting? If so, exactly how do I do that? So many questions. But until I'm perfected, it appears I won't have to worry about them. Let's move on now to Section 68. At the beginning of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 68, we read, Revelation given through Joseph Smith the Prophet at Hiram, Ohio, November 1st, 1831, in response to prayer that the mind of the Lord be made known concerning Orson Hyde, Luke S. Johnson, Lyman E. Johnson, and William E. McClellan. Now, William E. McClellan would later recount, that when he was ordained high priest, he did not understand the duties of the office. Perhaps that lack of understanding led in part to this request, for the revelation that followed provided McClellan and his companions with information about the duties of high priests and elders to preach the gospel to all the earth. In verse 1, the Lord gives Orson Hyde a personalized commandment and prophecy. My servant Orson Hyde was called by his ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel By the Spirit of the living God, from people to people and from land to land, in the congregations of the wicked, in their synagogues, reasoning with and expounding all scriptures unto them. You may remember that Orson Hyde was the man sent to the Holy Land to dedicate it to the gathering of the Jews. So, yes, Brother Hyde traveled the world and went from land to land as he was commanded. Now, verse 4 needs some more explanation. Speaking of holders of the priesthood, the Lord says, and whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and power of God unto salvation. Again quoting David Ridges in Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. Verse 4 is a good example of a verse of Scripture that must be interpreted in context. The word Scripture is defined concisely as that which is being taught by the missionary, and which, when followed, Will lead to salvation. In other words, the word scripture here does not mean that something a priesthood holding missionary says is equivalent to the scriptures sitting on your nightstand. This may seem obvious, but please understand that there has always been much confusion within the church as to what church doctrine really is. One of my favorite books is called Determining Doctrine, compiled and arranged by Dennis B. Horn. The whole book is quotes by prophets, apostles, and other church leaders about church doctrine what it is and what it isn't. The point of mentioning this book is not just that it's a great book, which it is, is the fact that when I say they could write a whole book with leadership quotes about church doctrine, it is true. Somebody already has. Church doctrine is a complex subject and its discussion must wait for another day. But for now, please note the word scripture can have multiple meanings. There's one more verse in this section that I'd like to discuss. It has been used in many lessons on being a good parent. I quote verse 25, And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. Please note that the sin mentioned in the last few words of this verse only refer to the sin of a parent if they don't teach their children faith, repentance, baptism, and confirmation. Parents are supposed to do the best they can when raising their children and teach them correct church principles. If a child's parents have done that, then there is no sin, no matter how the child turns out. This interpretation needs to be understood in the light of our present world. Here are some statistics that we need to know and accept. In 2007, 39.5% of the U.S. population attended religious services on a weekly basis. By 2014, this number had dropped to 35.7%, and church attendance is predicted to continue to plummet. Of our oldest living generation, born between 1928 and 1945, 51% attend church weekly. Of the next generation, called baby boomers, 38% attend weekly. Finally, of the youngest adults, or millennials, born between 1981 and 1995, only 28% attend church on a weekly basis. Comparing daily prayer and importance of religion to these generations shows similar results. Now, many of my friends are baby boomers. Many of them, including myself, have had to watch as some of their children have decided to leave the church. As parents, we wonder, did I do something wrong? Did I forget to follow verse 25 and not raise my children to understand the doctrines of the church? There's a lot of guilt in such thinking. I need my friends and all other parents listening to this podcast to realize that, despite their parents' best efforts, children do go astray. But the parents did nothing wrong. The statistics I quoted were worldwide numbers, indicating world trends that parents cannot change. Though we like to think the Latter-day Church is immune to such effects, it is not. The numbers for our religion are very similar. There is nothing wrong with D&C 68, verse 25. The Lord is telling the members of his church to be good parents. It is a fair verse. What is not fair is when members extrapolate this verse to imply that if their children turned out poorly, maybe the parents didn't follow verse 25 very well. In Proverbs 22, 6, we read that, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I'm sure that was true in the days of King Solomon, but the statistics don't bear it out today. Parents should do their best, keeping their children involved in Sabbath worship, church activities, family home evening, family prayer, etc. But despite all this, many children have chosen different paths, and many of our elderly members feel guilty about their children's choices. This is certainly not the Lord's will, and it never has been. If you want to read more about these trends within our own faith, I recommend the books The Next Mormons by Jana Reese or Shaken Faith Syndrome by Michael R. Ash. Let's continue to section 69. Like section 67 and 68, this revelation was also given in Hiram, Ohio in November of 1831. Now, church leadership had approved 65 revelations to be published in the Book of Commandments. Later, of course, this title would be changed to Doctrine and Covenants. Now, since this podcast is produced by Cedar Fort Publishing, I cannot resist suggesting that the title was changed by its publisher. The title, Book of Commandments, rather, does sound like a book about Exodus chapter 20, or maybe an exciting review of the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Doctrine and Covenants is certainly a better name and more specific to the contents of the scripture. The change was a good decision by the church or its publisher. In the introduction to this section, we read, Oliver Cowdery had previously been appointed to carry the manuscript of the compiled revelations and commandments to Independence, Missouri, for printing. He was also to take with him money that had been contributed for the building up of the church in Missouri. This revelation instructs John Whitmer to accompany Oliver Cowdery and also directs Whitmer to travel and collect historical material in his calling as church historian and recorder. This section is a confirmation of the church doctrine of go two by two. Missionaries are always partnered up. It is just safer to have someone to watch your back. Considering Oliver would be traveling with money and hadn't written copies of the future doctrine and covenants, it was decided someone should go with him. John Whitmer was chosen. In verses three through eight, the Lord explains to Brother Whitmer that this is an opportunity to multitask. Besides providing security for Oliver, This would be an opportunity for John Whitmer to gather information and documents about church history. Reading verses 7 and 8, and I quote, Nevertheless, let my servant John Whitmer travel many times from place to place, and from church to church, that he may the more easily obtain knowledge, preaching and expounding, writing, copying, selecting, and obtaining all things which shall be for the good of the church, and for the rising generations that shall grow up on the land of Zion to possess it from generation to generation, forever and ever. Jumping now to section 70. Yet again, like section 67 through 69, this revelation was given in Hiram, Ohio in November of 1831. In verse 1, the Lord lists off the men who make up the leadership of the church. Joseph Smith Jr., Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, John Whitmer, Sidney Rigdon, and William W. Phelps. In verse 3, he appoints them to be his stewards, and commands that they administrate the sales of the book of commandments. In verse 6, the Lord commands that these gentlemen not give the proceeds of book sales to the church. Jumping ahead to verses 15 and 16, we read that these brethren are to use those funds for their own personal needs. I quote, Now this commandment I give unto my servants for their benefit, while they remain, for the manifestation of my blessings upon their heads, and for a reward of their diligence and for their security for food and for raiment, for an inheritance, for houses and for lands, in whatsoever circumstances I, the Lord, shall place them, and whithersoever I, the Lord, shall send them. Now jumping back to verse 7, God tells his servants that any funds left over, after attending to their personal needs, shall be given to the bishop's storehouse. The Lord makes it clear that anyone who works for the church, whether administrating in spiritual matters or temporal matters, is worthy of his hire. This phrase that the laborer is worthy of his hire actually originates in Luke 10:7 where the savior is instructing his 70 whom he is sending out to do missionary work and I quote and in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his hire in this verse the lord's point is that a laborer in the lord's vineyard is worthy of the food drink and other donations given to him as he works Here in section 70, the Lord is giving the same counsel to his servants of the latter days. However, I am sure that the rules of church compensation are a lot more detailed in the church administration handbooks than we find here in section 70. The church is very careful about compensation. In the past, certain televangelists and leaders of other churches have been roundly criticized for the lavish lifestyles, including living in mansions and using personal jets for their travel. As far as I know, our church leaders have never been criticized for excessive salaries or lifestyles. That is pretty amazing, because every news reporter in the business would love to break such a story. But the church has been very careful to avoid such charges. So I have one more topic that I would like to squeeze in here at the end of our lesson. This topic would be great for a discussion, and I wish we could all be gathered in a room to talk about this. There are several verses in these four sections that we have just reviewed that mentioned that Independence, Missouri, will be Zion. Indeed, in C. one, It is not wisdom in me that he, Oliver Cowdery, should be entrusted with the commandments and the monies which he shall carry unto the land of Zion. Section 68, verse 31, Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them. Doctrine Kevin 69.5-6, And also my servants who are abroad in the earth, should send forth the accounts of their stewardships to the land of Zion, for the land of Zion shall be a seat and a place to receive and do all these things. Even today I hear many church members talk about heeding the call to migrate to Missouri in the last days. I think there is some confusion, and I thought this would be a good topic to end my lesson with. In fact, Independence, Missouri will not be the new Jerusalem or the main gathering place for saints in the last days. Now, to support my conclusion, I would like to read the entry in the ChurchOfJesusChrist.org under the title Zion slash New Jerusalem. For those of you who have thought for decades that we might be gathering in independence, I think this reading is necessary. As I read this first sentence, know that Joseph had received revelation that the city of Zion would be near the town of Independence in Jackson County, Missouri, in 1831. These sections we reviewed today were revealed in November of 1831. So these sections were still under that impression. So now, reading from the church website. In 1831, Joseph Smith received revelation that the site for the city of Zion would be near the town of Independence in Jackson County, Missouri. Bishop Edward Partridge began to purchase lands in the area and help settle new members as they arrived. In the summer of 1833, Joseph Smith and his counselors in the First Presidency sought divine guidance as they drafted a plan for the city, which included a grid of roads and 24 civic and church structures, all consecrated as temples for different purposes. That summer, however, citizens of Jackson County drove the saints out of the county, forcing them to abandon their land and their efforts to build the city of Zion. In a series of revelations that followed, the Lord instructed the saints regarding spiritual characteristics that they lacked, but which were necessary for any people who desired to build Zion, and gave them instructions on how to move forward. The saints began to prepare for the redemption of Zion, a time when they would return and reclaim their land in Missouri and resume building the Holy City. Unfolding Understanding The saints' attempts to redeem Zion, including appeals to the United States legal system, did not result in an acknowledgment of their rights or in an immediate return to Jackson County. In January 1841, revelation regarding the failed attempt to build a temple-centered Zion in Jackson County, the Lord explained, It behooveth me to require that work no more, but to accept of their offering. The same revelation commanded the saints to build a temple in Nauvoo, Illinois, and establish that city as a new place of gathering. In Nauvoo, Joseph Smith taught that Zion consisted of all of North and South America, adding that, in one sense, any place where the saints gather is Zion. He also emphasized the importance of the temple for Zion and the gathering, declaring that where we can get a temple built first, there is the place. Joseph anticipated that a temple city such as Nauvoo would serve as a center of gathering and that stakes of Zion would be established in many places, each serving as a refuge for the faithful. The Latter-day Saints continued to hope for a return to Jackson County, Missouri. At the same time, church leaders such as Brigham Young taught the importance of building Zion wherever the saints were. Not long after they settled in the Salt Lake Valley, President Young spoke of their growing city as a new Jerusalem and the rising Salt Lake Temple as the focal point of the gathering. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Church began to establish stakes of Zions in many locations around the world. Describing this effort, Elder Spencer W. Kimball explained that the First Presidency and the Twelve see great wisdom in the multiple Zions, Many gathering places where the saints within our own culture and nation can act as eleven in the building of the kingdom. This entry in the church website takes us to a logical conclusion, but then refuses to state it. Joseph Smith declared that where we can get a temple built first, there is the place. Brigham Young spoke of Salt Lake City as New Jerusalem and the rising Salt Lake Temple as the focal point of the gathering. So, I will state my conclusion, and I will try to do so carefully. I think the idea that the saints would eventually gather in independence again is one of those doctrines that the Church is going to allow to die away slowly. I have certainly not heard the doctrine discussed in general conference for decades. As a Church website entry indicated in its subtitle, this understanding has unfolded gradually. My conclusion, and my personal opinion, is that Independence, Missouri, will not be the New Jerusalem nor the main gathering place for the saints in the last days. While I understand that Zion has been defined as wherever saints gather, the New Jerusalem, or Zion Central, if you wish, will, again in my opinion, be Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City has the church infrastructure to sustain a New Jerusalem. Missouri does not. I read all this to you because reading sections 67-70 to of the Doctrine and Covenants can be confusing when you read that Zion will be in Missouri. That was the plan in November of 1831, but that changed in 1833, when the citizens of Jackson County drove the saints out of their county. How could God's plans be changed? When the people reject His plans. For example, when Moses first came down from Mount Sinai, he had a higher law written on the tablets he carried. By their disobedience, the children of Israel rejected that higher law, and Moses smashed those tablets. Israel was given the Mosaic Law instead, and it lasted for over 1,000 years. Skipping ahead to the past 200 years, the presence of the church could have been a great blessing for the state of Missouri, but its citizens violently rejected those plans. I think this is a rather novel example of the principle of common consent. God does not force church leadership, new callings, or the place he has chosen for Zion upon his people. As his children, be they members or non-members of the church, we can reject his plans, I find that strangely humbling and a little scary. In conclusion, I am very glad that the Doctrine and Covenants was published. I appreciate sections 67-70, to which tell us about the decisions of that publishing process. I appreciate section 1, which was revealed at the same time. The Doctrine and Covenants is a unique blend of scriptural language and Latter-day issues with which Joseph Smith and his friends had to deal. It is interesting that, even as the Lord reveals his desires regarding church administration details of the time, he reminds us that the Second Coming will occur, and great blessings await the faithful. There is great doctrine revealed in the Doctrine and Covenants. I am grateful for it, and I have a testimony of it. So that is all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed this lesson and learned a little something. Thanks for listening. This is Scott Fraser, guest teacher for David Ridges in Cedar Fort Publishing's Come Follow Me with David Ridges. Next week's lesson is Doctrine and Covenants, section 71 to 75, so you can prepare. Take care and have a wonderful week. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Cedarfort has thousands of Latter-day Saint books and products. You can order online at cedarfort.com and get free shipping with orders over $35. Have a look at our other podcasts, Everyday Saints, You Made New, Science and Scriptures, The Hope Addiction, and the Write Well podcast. Fill your podcast app with LDS content to keep you feeling uplifted all week long.